Again, we're going to be in Luke 10, chapter 10, picking up right where we left off. Uh, the word that uh, has come to my mind the most in the past week is the word sobering, uh, as in these are sobering days in which we are living. Uh, in a matter of hours as a result of this virus, we've seen the national uh, and conference NCAA basketball championships be canceled. Uh, we've seen MLB and NBA, the NHL, the Major League Soccer all cancel their games. We've seen countless uh, grade schools and universities switch to online. Thousands of flights uh, were canceled. Festivals, concerts canceled. And of course, church suspended, canceled as well. And as a result of all of this, we've also seen the Dow Industrial collapse to uh, levels that we haven't seen in recent years, creating even additional fears in this time. The World Health Organization, as we all know by now, refers to the COVID-19 uh, crisis as a pandemic. And so since we are told to self-quarantine, we're left to face this pandemic uh, in large part in isolation from each other. And this, of course, is not the first time we've seen things like this happen in world history. We've read about things like this happening in history before. And, of course, we read about things like this happening in Scripture, haven't we? We think about the plagues of Egypt, things like that. And how easy it was before the coronavirus for people to dismiss that things like this happen in the Bible and in our world. And yet, of course, we've seen that they do. And while I do not know what God is doing, I don't pretend to know for a moment to know what God is doing in the midst of all this. I do believe that he's doing something. I do believe that he's doing something. And at the very least, again, I think he's sobering us. Sobering us. To sober means to not be drunk, right? To, to not be controlled by a foreign substance. We typically think of controlling substances, the controlling substances of drugs and alcohol, but even more than drugs and alcohol, all of humanity in some way, shape, or form, the Bible says, is controlled by the patterns of this world. Right? And the pattern of the world that is most commonly controlling us is the ruse that we are all in control of our own lives. We are drunk or controlled by the lie that we largely run our lives, that we, we believe we can control our education, our jobs, our relationships. We even believe at some level, don't we, that we can control our own religion to bring about the most personal happiness. And we show this drunkenness by the presence of our anger at God when things don't go our way. And the presence of pride when they do go our way. But the prospect of death sobers us for the truth. That we are not in control. Death shows us that we are not in control. The coronavirus has introduced, friends, you think about this, the, the coronavirus has introduced no new reality to the world. All it's done is introduce a new way into the same reality that has marked humanity since the fall of Adam and Eve. Nothing is new. The only reason why this virus seems so jarring is because this virus is something that we can't seem to control. And that awakens us to the reality that we cannot ultimately control our lives, especially the fact that one day we will all die. Either by a virus or by some other measure. So the question for us is, will you be sobered by these realities? By this cultural moment? 
Or, friend, will you go on believing that you can still somehow control your fate? Or, as I think will happen more often, when life kind of returns back, assuming it does, returns back to normal, will you just go on living as you did before? Well, as he so often does, Jesus confronts our control drunkenness, as it were, with sobering words that I believe are providential for this moment when we open up to Luke chapter 10. He's going to ask us, in light of these recent events, will we go on reveling in earthly powers or will we come to trust in the one that is above all earthly powers? So that uh, brings us into Luke chapter 10 and just to kind of set up the passage, We've been seeing that Luke has slowed his narrative way down here in chapter 9 and now into 10 because the second most anticipated event in all of the history of the world is about to transpire. In chapter 9, you recall, we saw Jesus Christ was confessed by Peter for who he is, the anointed Savior. Saw that. That then triggered Jesus to openly uh, and clearly describe his mission, namely that he would come to offer his life as a ransom for sinners, be buried and raised in the third day to triumph over sin and death. And that then led to the Mount of Transfiguration, where the humanity of Christ was peeled back and we were able to see the glory of Christ. And then last week we saw how Jesus has now set his face toward Jerusalem, where he will accomplish this long-awaited redemption for all who believe. So that then leads us into our passage. Three points this morning that will sober us to the truth. One is the judgment to the unbelieving. Second is the joy to the believing. And then uh, thirdly, a call for response to pray, provide, and preach the gospel. So let me pray for us once more as we open up the word and read it. Father, we do pray that you would sober us, that we would be awakened to the truth. Teach us, God. To not revel in earthly power, but to live in the one that has above all earthly powers. Teach us to have joy in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First point here, judgment to the unbelieving. Take a look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Here's what it says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the street, into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon and for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sinned. So here we have Jesus is sending out 36 teams of two. They're going to spread out, verse 1 says, into every town and place where Jesus is going to go. So you've heard of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, the British are coming, the British are coming. Here we find the sending, the spreading of these 72 to say that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. The kingdom of God is coming near. You see that in verse 9 and verse 11. And the kingdom of God, as they preach this, as they fan out in advance of Jesus' coming, the kingdom of God here is the reign and rule of Christ. That's what the kingdom of God is. And they're speaking of that as they go to these towns. And since, uh, since Jesus says he's sending these guys out as sheep amidst wolves, and since we have the presence of those woes there, clearly this mission that they're going out like, is like the one that we saw back in chapter 9. It anticipates a great deal of rejection. Not total rejection, to be clear. As healings are going to occur, peace is going to come to some towns and villages. Uh, there, Jesus even says there's a harvest uh, that is out there, but regardless, the anticipation seems to be more on the rejection side of things. And so we need to ask, what is it they are rejecting about this kingdom? Well, the answer is right there in verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And so the rejection of the preaching of the kingdom as these guys go out is the same thing as rejecting God the Father and God the Son. We are mindful of another story later in Scripture that Luke will write about in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, when Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul, goes out and he's actually preaching against the Christians and persecuting them. And Jesus confronts him and says, why do you persecute me? And so this is not an issue, friends, of Jesus being kind of super sensitive, needing the affirmation of people. That's not what's going on here. Jesus knew that the message of the kingdom was wedded to the promises of God in the Old Testament that the Jews had been taught for centuries. That's where they're going into cities where the Jews were. They had been taught this. These Jews had been taught this for centuries. They knew, these Jews knew, and they claimed to believe that God the Father was going to bring in a kingdom, that there was going to be this Messiah, uh, that he and he, this Messiah would bring in this kingdom. But as we have seen time and time again, the Israelites would go through sort of external religion. They'd go through the motions of external religion, but in their hearts, they just didn't care about it at the end of the day. Most of them, that is. And so these Israelites gained a reputation of rejecting God's word in order to go their own way. Jesus will later say of Jerusalem, Israel's capital city, in Matthew 23, verse 37 to 38, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. And so if you've ever read the Old Testament before, you see this on every page. You see the frustration of Jesus. You see the rejection that Jesus anticipates. Because oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, we see what happens is, is 
God confronts them with prophets and teachings and things of the like. And yet, they sort of repent for a little while, they sort of turn, they feel bad about it, and eventually they get back to what they were doing, idolatry uh, before. And yet God will still show them mercy after mercy, love, loving act after loving act, time and time again, and yet Israel will fall back into her old patterns. And because these people, in particular, this mission that's going out, because these people will reject the coming of Christ, the one that is the answer to all of those promises, as a result, these people in this time are going to receive a greater punishment. Right? That's the context for the woes. Notice those words, more bearable. Underline those. More bearable. Woe, that means judgment, to whomever doesn't receive the messengers of Christ, verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now if you're wondering, you're not familiar with the story of Sodom, think about the worst city in your mind that you've been to. Right? That place is Disney World compared to Sodom. <laughs> That's Sodom is. It's really bad. And Jesus is saying it's going to be more bearable for Sodom than for those that are rejecting Christ in this time. Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. To Capernaum, Jesus says it will be brought down to Hades. Then there's a, he has there another statement regarding judgment. And again, all these statements of judgment, all these sort of punishments that are more that are worse than others that come before, maybe even after. The reason why, we've got to get this clear in our minds, the reason why is because they are rejecting the messengers of Christ, which means they're rejecting God himself, Christ the Messiah himself, and that results in a greater penalty as a result. Unless you think, friends, that Jesus is being too severe in this judgment, just imagine for a moment, God showing you kindness after kindness, and then one day showing up at your door, and you open the door, and you see him do miracles in your front yard, and he teaches you in your front yard, and then he calls you to repent and to believe and to receive him into your home and into your heart, and then he walks up on your doorstep, and he starts to come into your home, at which time you slam the door in God's face and say, not interested, I'm going to go watch Netflix. Or even worse, you shake your fist at it. I don't want you. But maybe a more contemporary example. Imagine having a child, son or daughter, raising that child, loving them, giving them clothes to eat, food to eat, sorry, clothes to wear, food to eat, a home uh, for them to live in, teaching them, correcting them, raising them up, doing all of these good things. Then later when they're adult, you come up to their house, your son or daughter's house, and you knock on the door, and when they see you, they look at you and say, not interested. They slam the door in your face. This is not Jesus being overly sensitive. This is not Jesus being overly severe, overreactionary. This is appropriately measured indignation. Appropriately measured judgment. And so the question for us then is, what is our response to this passage? How do we respond to this? We are not, we're not first century citizens of Bethsaida or Capernaum or Chorazin. We are not first century citizens of Jerusalem that rejected Christ. So why is this here for us? Why is this in scripture? Well friends, it's here to do for us uh, the same thing that it did for them. It's here to tell us that in the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God has come here. 
God has visited us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, wherever the proper preaching of the true Christ goes, with it goes the nearness of the kingdom. And so the question then remains for us, as it did for those first century hearers, will you reject the teaching of the kingdom? I mean, here I am, I'm a messenger, preaching Christ. Will you reject the teaching of the kingdom? Or will you receive it in five days? You need to know that if you reject it, then while your punishment may be less bearable than these cities, the reality is, friend, your punishment will be real. Because in the, to- in the rejection of the total Christ and the sum total of his call to righteousness, you then reject God himself. And if you reject God by your not turning from your sin and turning to Christ for salvation and walking in repentance and faith, then like any other crime, you should expect to pay a penalty. And given who that penalty is against, we would expect that penalty to you to be severe. Right? I can jump a fence through my neighbor's backyard, and I might get a slap on the wrist, but if I did the exact same thing at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, I would get a more severe punishment. Why? Because of who I sinned against. So it is for us. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And let it be known, friends, that includes me. That includes me. So just because I preach this passage, I don't think for a moment that I am in some ways, by my own nature, above these justifiable denunciations. I have committed more sins than I can count. I have disobeyed, I have broken the Ten Commandments and then some. In fact, if I were to contract the coronavirus today and die tomorrow, I would, like all humanity, have to stand in front of God at his judgment seat. And if he were to ask me in that moment, why should I let you into the kingdom of heaven? I would say to him, you shouldn't. I don't deserve it. I've done nothing to deserve it. I've done everything to deserve hell. My going to seminary, my teaching the Bible, my being a pastor, my doing good deeds, none of it makes me worthy of the kingdom of God. In my sin, I have rejected Jesus countless times. And no amount of good works, good intentions, or good confessions can wash me clean. I can accept that. Not because I like it, but because it's true. I deserve hell, not heaven. And the reality is, friends, that's true of all of us. We all stand to receive the eternal woes of Christ because all of us have rejected Him, the eternal God, in our sin. And so if you are unwilling to turn away from sin and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and His triumph in the resurrection over sin and death, if you do not do that, if you do not return from sin and trust in Jesus, if you're unwilling to do that, then you reject Him and you, that teaching that they, we see in Luke 10, that stands upon you, friend. John 3.36 is another passage that makes that so clear. You stand to receive the judgment of God upon your death in Jesus' return or in your death. One of the two. Whichever comes first. And you need to know, friend, I get no joy out of telling you that. But if this is true, and I know it to be true, and I don't tell you that this is true, then I wouldn't love you. So my desire is to love you. So the most loving thing I can do, knowing that this is true, that judgment stands to fall upon unbelieving people. If I know that to be true, and I don't call you to turn away and trust in Jesus, and I don't tell you that if you don't, that you stand under his judgment, then I don't love you. I'm calling you to turn away. 
from your sin and look to Jesus to satisfy God's punishment for you. But if not, judgment stands to follow. So remember what I said at the beginning. I said these are sobering days, right? Sobering days. These days are like a pot full of water after a drunken stupor. They awaken us to God, to ourselves, and to the truth. And so the question is for you and for me, is will we listen to these sobering truths in this sobering time? Or will we not? And I want to be clear about something. I am not saying in any way, shape, or form that this pandemic is the judgment of God. I don't know that. But what I do know is that I believe that God is getting our attention. He's trying to get our attention. God is kindly serving us up to the truth of our attempts to be like God. And so from the lips of Christ himself, we are being warned in this passage. Will we listen or will we not? In the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom comes near. So friend, what's your response? Well, if your response is to repent and believe, I have good news. Take a look at the next passage. Chapter 10, verse 17 to 24. This is on the back side of that mission coming out. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear. So we see the backside of the short-term mission trip. Right, The 72 come back and they tell Jesus what happened. And notice, by the way, that they refer to him as Lord. Did you see that? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They recognize it's his power. They're excited. The disciples are excited, right? Makes sense why they would be. They're experiencing the authority of Christ for themselves. And Jesus tells them in verse 19 that he was the one that gave them that authority. It's not of themselves. And we see in verse 22, since all things are handed over to him, nothing can hurt them since he is over all things. And so once again, friends, we learn Jesus does not understand there to be this kind of yin-yang thing, this kind of good versus evil, wondering who's going to win in the end. Jesus does not understand that. Not at all. The Lord has no rivals. He is stronger than evil and darkness. He is the light, and light always overcomes darkness. Jesus is king. He, he might have plenty of challengers, but he has no match for his greatness, for his power, and his might. 
as evidenced by his ability to give his authority to others in order that they might cast out darkness. But I want you to look what comes next after they come back. They're really excited. Woohoo! It was great. It was fun. All this great stuff happened, Jesus. Look what Jesus says after the report. These friends, speaking of sobering, some of the most sobering words I believe in all of the Bible. Jesus takes the joy of the 72 and he orients them away from temporal joy and unto true and lasting joy. Verse 20. Circle this in your Bible. Underline it. Memorize it. Enjoy it in these days. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the Spirit are subject, spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now let's ask the question, why does Jesus make this move? Here. Like, what's he saying? What's he doing here? What does he mean to teach them? What does he mean to teach us in this question? Well, surely the easy answer, right, is reminding us that our salvation, our redemption, our home in heaven is more important than anything else. That's right. That's what it says there. But he seems, Jesus seems to want to set this reality against the backdrop of something else. You can see it there in verse 20. Again, if you read it closely. Do not rejoice in this. And then notice he tells you what the this is. That the spirits are subject to you. Which is to say, do not rejoice that you have power over them. And that line that comes next after Jesus saying he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That, that statement about don't be happy about the fact that people are subject to you now. That statement comes after Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's about a hundred things we could say about that verse. We're not going to say anything other than to say this. What Jesus is doing there is he's saying that the God of this world, the one that seems to have so much power, he was there to oversee him, not only falling, but falling quickly, thus the lightning. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't rejoice in earthly powers, even if they come by Christian ministry. Don't rejoice in being able to yield your authority over things in the here and now. That's not where true and lasting joy is to be found. Joy, Jesus is teaching, is found, is being found out by God and having a home with Him in heaven. Jesus is making the same point that he made right after he told the, the, gospel, the disciples of the gospel for the first time. He's making the same point. Luke 9, 25. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? What does it profit a man to get all this earthly power and yet not have a home in heaven? Jesus is making the same point here that Luke has been trying to, try, try, trying to call us to throughout this whole series in Luke. Remember the sermon of the, on the plane? Remember that one? Luke 6.20, blessed are the poor, the hungry, now. Blessed are those who weep now, those who hate you, exclude you, revile you on account of me. Blessed are you. And woe to those that are rich, full, laughing, and accepted by all, now. God's word, friends, is teaching us the opposite of what the world is teaching us. Jesus is teaching us that joy will never be found in having earthly power. Not true, less than joy. Joy is being found out by Jesus, who is above all earthly powers. Remember, guys, that, that Jesus humbled himself and became a man. Like, just denied what we might call power in so many ways. 
hiding the supremacy of his glory and his humanity. It pleased the Father to have Jesus break in by a poor teenage virgin girl from a know-nothing town like Nazareth. And then our sister Mary, remember the song that she sang back in Luke chapter 1, 51-53? Mary says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those who, of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Beloved, do not rejoice in earthly powers. Rejoice in Him who saved you and gave you a home above all earthly powers. Rejoice that your citizenship is in a city whose administration is so powerful that no weapon formed against it will stand. And rejoice, beloved, not only that, but your individual names are written in that heaven. Did you catch that? Heaven is not filled with some nameless mass of humanity unknown to God. In Christ, He has saved a people with names, with stories, with faces and lives. Do not find true and lasting joy in earthly powers. Find joy in the fact that everyone that trusts in the blood of the Lamb has a home, has a place in heaven, a city that will never fail. And also, friend, rejoice all the more that your names are written in heaven not, listen, don't lose sight of this one, not because of anything you've done or said. That's where Jesus goes next. Your names are there. You have that. Because God was gracious to you. That's what Jesus goes on to describe in the passage that comes next. Jesus moves from his statement about not rejoicing in the fact that the spirits are subject now, but, you know, rejoice that your names are in heaven. He moves from that into prayer. Did you catch that? He moves from that into prayer in the Holy Spirit. And he thanks God in that prayer that he has hidden these things. It's continuous this, continuing this theme of sort of the humble over the proud. That he has hidden these things from the wise, the kind of earthly powers, and the understanding, and revealed them to little children, that is, those that are weak in earthly powers. Here, of course, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. All believers are not literally children, Right? But they are like children. My sons inherently trust me in ways that they won't when they're adults. Right? That's just going to happen. I'm ready for it. Not that well, I think I'm ready for it. We'll see. Likewise, the wise and the understanding, they refuse to humble themselves like children and trust Christ and follow Him. Instead, they choose to live for earthly powers and design a kind of salvation of their own, which of course is no salvation. And in this way, Jesus says God has hidden them from the sight of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now to be clear, guys, don't lose sight of this. It's not as though they want to see it and just can't. It's the fact that they don't want to see it. They're reveling in their earthly powers. They're reveling in their sin and idolatry and things of the like. They are culpable for their responsible, they're, they're culpable for their unbelief. Jesus just illustrated that in all this teaching on the woes. But for us who do believe, we were just like them. And we still can be like them, right? However, God is gracious to us. Look at verse 21. Circle that word, gracious. 
For such was your, not just your will, your gracious will. He's describing how salvation came. Gracious will. God graciously willed that those who believe would come to believe. Which is to say, none of us earned God's salvation. That would then negate grace. We are not inherently, believers are not inherently any better than our unbelieving friends. As I said earlier, I do not deserve heaven. Nobody does. So the difference between the believer and the unbeliever is the difference between the believer's unwillingness to give up earthly powers and bow the knee to King Jesus, as well as, same truth, as well as the reality that the Lord graciously willed to choose the believer and have them be saved. Not because of anything we did, but only because of his gracious will. That's exactly what Jesus says there in verse 22. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses, the Son chooses, the Son chooses to reveal Him. Right? So in this same passage, if you're wondering what's going on, in the same passage, Jesus affirms the responsibility of all people to humble themselves like children, deny earthly powers, uh, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow them. If we don't, judgment comes to us. And he's also teaching, at the same time, he clearly teaches those that not all, those that actually do come to believe, that do deny themselves and take up their cross, follow God. Jesus is saying it was only because of God's gracious will. He's teaching that too. And that's what scripture means. That's what it teaches us when we read in passages like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace, you have been saved. But through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Or another passage, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, that he describes it, who believed in his name, he, that is God, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, that is not by tradition, nor of the will of the flesh, that is to say, not by your willing yourself to do good things, nor of the will of man, not by your choice, but of or from God. So those that who don't believe are responsible for their unbelief, and at the very same time, those of us who do believe are just as deserving of hell, but God graciously willed that we would believe. How do those two things work together? I don't know. But I do believe that they're true. For one main reason. I can give you about four reasons. I started to list them out, and I tried to make my sermon shorter, and I cut it short. I can give you one reason why I believe these two things are true. It's the most important reason. Jesus believes them to be true. I trust Jesus more than I trust myself, because he showed me and the rest of the world what love really is, when he did not have to. He gave up his heavenly power, so that I might be with him in heaven. That leads me to trust him. By his giving up his life for his enemies, by sinners, for sinners like me, he has proven himself trustworthy and he is comfortable with these two tensions, these two realities. This, friends, is not blind faith. This is informed trust. 
So I rejoice, we who believe rejoice that God has chosen to work amongst the weak, amongst the forgotten, amongst the fools of this world in order to save those that believe. As Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, beloved, rejoice not in whatever earthly power you might think that you might have or might get. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven, which is above all earthly powers, and in your graciously being given the sight of Christ, verse 22, 23 and 24. You are blessed, Christian. You are blessed because you see, you hear what kings and prophets, and even angels, long to see. Kings and prophets of old, it says there. And even I would say again, angels, high and high, long to look into this occurrence. They long to look into this manifestation of the promises of God all coming to, to bear. And those disciples, and we disciples of Jesus Christ, we've been given sight to see it and revel it and love it and enjoy it. And so what the kings and the prophets of old waited on, and what those uh, first century uh, uh, Israelites rejected so many times, what they waited for, we now know by faith. And all of God's promises are yes in Christ. He is our joy, he's our home, he's our life, he's our king. And because he chose us and laid his life down for us in our sin, we now have a place in the kingdom and we now have a home in heaven. And given the week that we just had and the weeks that we will experience ahead of us, gosh, there's no greater truth than that. No matter what some virus, cancer, or any other threat our lives may try and intimidate with us, people may try to intimidate us with, in Christ we have victory. Therefore we do not have to fear. In his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has overcome what earthly powers try to intimidate us with. In Christ, no matter what, no matter what, the best news is always in front of us. What grace, what hope. So before we close, let me finish with Three ways in which this, I think this text would have us to respond in joy. We should have joy, Christians should have joy that our names are written in heaven. Not try to seek that earthly power, but rejoice the fact that we have, uh, we are part of the one that is above all earthly powers. But what would that joy look like? Three ways. Here's one, I'm gonna come at you quick. Luke 10, 2. We pray. First. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. The harvest represents God's children, the redeemed. The laborers represent the evangelists, which should be understood to be all Christians. They're the ones to go and get the harvest. So there's this kind of riches of supply, Jesus is saying, but the shortage of laborers. It's a kind of problem of sorts. And so what's Jesus' answer to that problem? The harvest is plenty full, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. To send out laborers into, I love this, his harvest. Circle his harvest. It's his. We're God's people. We are not our own. Since he's the one that saved us. Jesus' answer for harvesting of people is not good. I want you to notice this. It's not just to pray. It's to pray earnestly. So if you are repenting and believing in Christ, you are among the laborers. You get to be one of those laborers. They go out to call people to Jesus. And part of our joy in heaven is getting to plead with God in prayer to get more people to come in and spread out. This is not just our obligation. This is our joy to do this. 
We have experienced the joy of a home in heaven, and now since we do, out of love for God and neighbor, we should want more people to come in, right? So pray for it. Since we know the sight of Christ comes by God's gracious will, in other words, He has to do it, and since we know the task is way too big for us, we should be earnestly praying for God to raise up more believers who would then go win more believers who would gather together. Speaking of which, did you notice that Jesus assumes the way people come to be harvested is through laborers? It's through preaching? Come back to that in a moment. So in part because of this passage, just this past week, just studying this passage and this whole COVID-19 thing, I have had a week of praying earnestly. Because again, I believe that this is a sobering moment. And I've been pleading with God that he would awaken people to the truth. That this would be a moment where people would sort of the fog would lift and they would see. That's going to mean that we need to be praying earnestly and preaching to them, which will come. I hope that you have been praying the same way. Praying earnestly that more people would see and enjoy Jesus as a result of all the uncertainty around us. And so my question for you then, believer, do you not just pray that laborers would be sent, but do you pray earnestly? Is that part of your prayer life? Earnest prayer that people would spread out and preach the gospel. Do you earnestly pray for that? That's part of the joy of our salvation. We want God to receive glory and other people to know the same joy as we do. And so, if you don't know where to begin on this, if you're not familiar with the Joshua Project or Operation World, there's two good places that will tell you ways in which you can go and earnestly pray for people that don't know the gospel. Also, pray for more workers to go to Central Asia to reach the Kurds that can hopefully be here. Pray that people among our midst would go there. Pray for more workers to go spread out amongst the Hispanics of Columbia Heights. Pray for more workers to go to our brother Jeremy in Lincoln Heights to minister to the poor and the weak there. Pray for more workers here in Ward 3 to spread out into Aiden Park and all around that they would know the glory of Christ and come into the joy of salvation. Pray earnestly for that. That's part of our joyful obligation. Second thing, provide for these laborers. Provide for them. So we pray joyfully, earnestly, and then we provide for them. That's part of the joy of heaven. In reference to their going out and being cared for, Jesus says of the evangelist, look at verse 7, that the laborer deserves his wages. You don't hear the language of deserving a lot in the Bible. Okay? The laborer deserves his wages. And this is true of any trade. Right? If you're a teacher of, you know, whatever, Chris, you do in the world in politics, you deserve your wage. Right? But here the context is the ministers of the word. That's the context. In their work, they deserve their wage. There are a plethora of other verses in the Bible that support this. This is why, friends, this is why Restoration Church, this is why you pay me and Joey and Catherine and Alejandro. Because we are laboring to minister the word. We deserve our wages, it says. This is why we take up an offering so that we can give to others that are ministering the word because they deserve their wage. They are harvesting people by praying and preaching the word. Therefore, part of the wage that all of us have been given, because we deserve it when we work, part of that wage should go back to other laborers so that more people can be more devoted to bringing in God's harvest. 
bringing in what Jesus purchased for himself. And so, Restoration Church, I want you to think about this for a second. When you take your staff salaries and combine that with the 12 or 13 percent of our missions giving, is that right, Joey, roughly there? 13 percent plus our salaries. When you put all that together, the overwhelming majority of our church's budget reflects what Jesus teaches right here. That above all earthly powers is a home in heaven. Therefore, we pray earnestly and we provide for labors to know that way and be built up in that way and be cared for on their way to heaven. All right. As followers of Christ, we pray earnestly for more labors. We provide for those labors. And third, we preach as laborers. This is part of our joy in heaven. Verse 3, Jesus says he sends out the 72 as lambs amidst wolves. And at the end of this book, at the end of the book of Luke, Luke 24, 47, after explaining that he had come and made atonement for sin, buried and risen from the dead, Jesus says, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And that's when, when Luke writes his second volume in Acts, that's exactly what we see them doing. They preach the gospel. And those people, some of those people believed, and those people told other people, and those people told other people, and eventually it got to us. Now, maybe even in this moment, it's good to you. Because Christians preach the gospel out of joy. So I join in preaching the gospel to you so that Jesus might have the fullness of his wife, the church, his people, with him in heaven. But again, the way Jesus reveals who his children are is by all of us believing, all of us that believe, preaching the gospel to those that don't believe. The gospel is the payment, it's the power, and we are the means to go and tell people about that power, so that they might know the joy of heaven themselves. I love that quote from Charles Spurgeon, who says, I find that the more people I preach the gospel to, the more elect I find. This is not only our obligation to preach the gospel, this is part of our joy of heaven, inviting other people into it. And these, friends, sobering times are primed for people to hear the gospel. People are realizing they don't have control of their lives like they thought. They are fearing, many fearing death. And we, as Christians, are the only ones on planet Earth that know the one that stood death square in the face and overcame. We have news of that. We can deliver them into healing, into life, into peace, into the joy of heaven by calling them to it. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, pray earnestly for the Lord to send more into the harvest. Provide for those that go. Preach yourselves, uh, preach the gospel yourself that more people might not find themselves as we saw the first half, judged by Christ, but instead enjoying the joy of Christ in heaven. People are asking, find ways to serve. Ask people how they're dealing with this. Use those conversations to graciously turn the conversation to call them to Christ. Tell them next week, assuming we have this live stream thing, call them to watch this again. And then join us when we come back here. And lastly, if you're one of those ones that maybe tuned in because a friend asked you to tune in, let me say, I'm so glad that you did. Uh, and let me say to you, if you're sitting at home and you feel compelled to give your life to Christ, I would love to speak to you, but even more than that, go call that friend right now. Just go ahead and put this down. I'm going to pray in a minute. And call them now, in this moment. Call them. 
and say, listen, I'll listen to this guy talk about Jesus, judgment, joy, preaching the gospel, the hope of heaven, and I want to know that. Just tell him that. Say, Nathan, that guy you told me to watch told me to call you because I'm compelled to call you. Just tell him that. And then they'll know what to do to help you follow Jesus. But if you're, you find your way into this live stream and you're compelled to respond to the gospel and you don't have anybody to call, then call me. You can find my email on the website. Just send me an email. Put your number down there and I'll call you. And we'll talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And escaping that judgment and finding the joy of it. I'll finish with this. Uh, I read on the web yesterday a quote uh, from the rapper of the Cray that I thought was really poignant for these times. He said, We haven't lost control of our lives. We've lost the illusion that we were ever in control to begin with. So, friend, hope in the one that does have control. Hope in the place that will never be overcome. And be joyful that you have it. And then tell others that they might have it too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome sin and death. That you have overcome coronavirus. You have overcome plagues. You have overcome cancer. Because you have overcome death. We rejoice, Jesus, that you came were meek and lowly when you were the King of Kings. Teach us to be humble as you were humble. Empower us for that end. Teach us to pray earnestly. Teach us to provide for those that go. And teach us to be preachers ourselves of the gospel. And in the midst of it all, God, may we not strive for power on earth, but rejoice that our individual names are written in heaven. And soon enough, we will be there. But Lord, we do pray that we come soon. Come soon. We are weary of fears. We are weary of death. And we pray that Christ would return. That we might know our everlasting home. And be with you. And have all these fears dispelled as we look into your face. We pray this in Jesus' name.